Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Well, welcome back to the show. This is actually... um, Our first time, uh, as promised in the last episode, our first time talking about what's happening on campus. Uh, We started out with Jonathan Rausch, of course, and moved on to Glenn Greenwald and David Ball, and we touched on campus subjects during those episodes. But classes are ending on campus. The last disinvitation attempt probably or hopefully has been made. So I'm sitting here today with Greg Lukianoff, president and CEO of FIRE. You have all met him before, hopefully, on our first episode. And Samantha Harris, she is the director of policy research here at FIRE and actually the person in the introduction who says the right to listen. So her voice (laughs) should sound familiar. Sam, Greg, thanks for joining us today. Uh, Thanks for having me. So let's uh, let's let's talk about this 2015-2016 school year. Yeah. Headline grabbing. Yeah. Uh, You know. I don't know that we were so much expecting the, the the students behaving badly angle that a lot of the press like to jump on. But, yeah. Greg, you came out with an article, cover story for The Atlantic at the beginning of the school year, that was prescient by all standards. I mean, it predicted a lot of the things that we had seen. Yeah, um, unfortunately. <laughs> you know, it, it, uh, the thing that I keep on explaining, and, and one of the reasons why I think it's great that you're talking to both me and Sam, is that me and Sam have been with FIRE for a really long time. Yeah. Um, and we've seen. Yeah, when did you start at Fire, Greg? Uh, October second, two thousand one. Yeah, and you were you were early on too. I was May two thousand five. Yeah. Although I also was here for a couple of months during law school as a legal yes, intern. Yes, two of those. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I, actually, when I first came to look for apartments uh, at, at, in Philadelphia, it was uh, nine. I landed at Philadelphia International Airport at nine ten a.m. on nine eleven. Um, so that's a story all, all, all to itself. So you were in the air during 9-11? Yeah, I was, in, I was in the air during 9-11. Wow. I got stuck in Philadelphia because uh, they, they shut down um, uh, flights, you know, all over the country uh, uh, for a, for several days. Um, yeah. It's really weird to look in the sky and see no planes for, for days in a row. Uh-huh. Wow, that's incredible. 9-11, actually, to go on a bit of a digression here, sure. the, the environment on campus was, was different after 9-11, right? Sure. It was one of the big periods... Uh, a lot of challenges for free speech on campus right after 9-11. Well, what's interesting is that, you know, um, I think that 9-11 had, had the surprising effect of reminding professors that they can get in trouble for what they say, too. <laughs> <laughs> and the the immediate aftermath of 9-11, we had a lot of cases. Um, you know, some of them were people uh, saying, um, you know, uh, let's get let's get those terrorists. And some people were saying things unpatriotic. Uh, you know, so uh, the first let- uh, letter I wrote was on behalf of Richard Berthold, who joked. Uh, what school was he at? Uh, at the University of New Mexico, okay. where, where he said, anybody can blow up the Pentagon as my vote. Uh-huh. Not a very sensitive thing to say, but this is a professor known for being... Um, bombastic. You know, bomb- a little bombastic, a little snarky. Uh-huh. And he immediately apologized, um, but he refused to fight out his case in public. And, you know, uh, six months later, he was out of a job. And I remember talking to him on the phone saying, listen, if you don't fight this out in public... You're never going to. Uh, you're never going to keep your job, and unfortunately, we ended up being right on that. But in other cases, it was people putting up. You know, I think at Central Michigan University, it was students putting up signs saying, "You know, get the bastards." Uh, that was actually the cover. I believe of the San Francisco Chronicle, believe it or not, mm-hmm. said, "You know, the bastards um, and American flags," and they were told to take them down because that might be construed as offensive to other students. I, I assume pro-terrorism students, I guess. Um, but it was a very interesting time to, uh, to, to, to sort of cut your teeth on free speech issues when everybody was terrified and angry, but all in different directions. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, throughout the 2000s, FIRE, and Greg, I know you've talked about this a lot in some of the presentations you've done, FIRE's main challenge on campus was convincing the administrators, yeah. right, that free speech matters. Sam, when did we start the speech code report? Um, 2006 Six was our seven, first yeah. one, yeah. Yeah, and we had 75% of schools maintain red light speech codes, right? Right, yeah. And we're getting down. What are, what are we at this year? This year it was below 50% for the first time. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, as you're noting, there's been a shift. I mean, it's, it's not to say that it's not sometimes still difficult to convince administrators about the importance of free speech, and particularly with some of the pressure we're seeing from the federal government. Uh-huh. In some areas it's become very, very difficult. But I feel like one of the biggest changes I've seen in my years at FIRE has been this shift from 
what I call kind of like a top-down censorship to the calls for censorship coming from students themselves. And actually, it's interesting that you mentioned the 9-11 situation with faculty because I do remember reading some of those cases. But then in the interim, for many of my years at FIRE, I feel like the, the primary people we were helping with censorship, although there were always faculty cases, were students. And now I feel like with this latest round of student-driven censorship, it's really landed squarely um, on the doorstep of faculty and in a way that really affects their classroom speech. Like, I feel like in my first years here, when we got a faculty case, it was usually, uh, you know, a faculty member who had said something outside the classroom that people were outraged about and, you know, calling for their head over. Now I feel like the faculty cases we're getting tend to be more related to their classroom speech, which, you know, when you think about the primary purpose of a university as to educate students, you know, the idea that faculty are increasingly finding themselves in trouble over germane classroom discussions is particularly, um, Mm -hmm. I think, distressing. And that's been a trend I've noticed in the last couple of years. Yeah, I'm I'm looking at our 10 worst colleges for free speech in 2016 list that Greg every year publishes on the Huffington Post on behalf of FIRE. Um, You know, the first school on here, and it's not a ranked list, but is Mount St. Mary's University. The second one is Northwestern University, where Mm -hmm. Professor Laura Kiplis famously, at the end of the 2014 and 15 school year, was brought up on Title IX charges, so there's a Title IX investigation into her essay that she published for the Chronicle of Higher Education. Then on here, we've also got Louisiana State University, where mm-hmm. FIRE sponsored a lawsuit on behalf of a faculty member who was fired there for her pedagogical techniques. What's happening? Yeah, um, I, we're, we've just seen a lot more cases of faculty members' jobs being threatened for what they say. Mm-hmm. Um, and in many cases, those are tenured faculty members, uh, people who used to think they were untouchable uh, yeah. when it came to freedom of speech. So I'd, I'd say Teresa that Buchanan, was, Laura, Laura, Laura Kipnis, yeah. Laura, uh, Laura One Kipnis. of the professors in the Mount St. Mary's case. Well, and the, and, and the Marquette case as yeah. well, you know, uh, uh, Professor McAdams. Yeah. They're, they're all situations where, they, where tenure was not good enough of protection. Uh-huh. So uh, I, I've noticed the same trend that, that uh, Sam has. Um, that, you know, for most of our, our career that we were trying to explain to people that um, administrators were the ones who were sort of r- r- running out of control. And, and sometimes it was ideological. In some cases, it was don't criticize the parking program at yeah. the school. Don't criticize our brand. You know, something very, you know, sometimes it could be downright corporate. Uh, the second phase that I always identify, which is also pretty recent, was a much more aggressive Department of Education. Mm-hmm. That really took up a lot of our time, I'd say, starting in around 2010, 2011, really 2011. Yeah. I characterize my time at FIRE as before, 2000, before <laughs> April 4th, 2011 and after April 4th, 2011. What happened on April 4th? The Department of Education issued a Dear Colleague letter um, about Title IX. And while that particular Dear Colleague letter concerned due process issues, it sort of marked the beginning of an era of really aggressive sort of micromanagement of colleges' handling of uh, Title IX, which includes uh, sexual assault and sexual harassment, which you know often includes a verbal component. Yeah. Um, and so that just, I think, really changed the landscape in a lot of ways. And um, you know, there have been obviously there have been developments since 2011. The um, 2013 blueprint, yep. for example, and just the pressure that a lot of these colleges and universities are facing from the federal government to investigate. You know, some things. You know, like like an essay that a professor writes sure. in a in a national publication, Laura Kipnis. But you know, I, do you think, Greg, that this? Um, we'll get back to the the different stages here. But do yep. you think that this? faculty angle, this angle where faculty members are increasingly under threat from administrations is being overlooked a bit? I think it is. Um, but, uh, you know, I was, I was just at a conference um, uh, a couple, uh, actually, days ago, and there was there was a, a university president there who will remain unnamed, but who was being very dismissive as, as to the whole issue of mm-hmm. restricted speech on campus, and someone else there who was trying to say nothing to see here. It's basically just journalists run amok, um, you know, trying to chase an interesting story um, about all these sexy cases. And I had so many responses to it, not the least of which is we've been doing this since 1999. Our cases are almost never quote unquote headline cases. Um, and I feel like we've been so, sort of toiling in obscurity to a large degree, at least for most m- m- most people are concerned, uh, when it comes to these really ridiculous abuses uh, uh, abuses of power. Um, and the journalists who have been covering uh, how bad it's gotten in recent years are not exactly lightweight. Well, you have you know, Jonathan Chait, you know, sort of opened the door by talking about yeah. the problem of PC and the way we communicate. You know, Emily Yaffe, you know, uh, talking about it. But then, I, but the final point I wanted to make is, and professor after professor is coming forward. Uh, you know. And even at very prestigious schools saying, 
yeah, this has reached a ridiculous point. I feel like I can't, you know, as uh, Jeannie Sook made the point of many of her and her colleagues, um, that she's afraid to talk about sexual assault in her criminal law class uh, because students will object to it. And to me, the thought of a generation of lawyers not learning the law related to sexual assault, of course, is uh, most dangerous to people who are victims of yeah. sexual assault. So th- this is this is coming from all over the place right now, and it's and to, for, at one level it's about time, but it's also sad that I think it comes from the fact that uh, whereas students had once been, and I want to stress this, and this is the third phase that you were yeah. talking about. Students had once been some of our best allies on campus. They had consistently they got free speech. They understood due process better than faculty members often, certainly better yeah. than administrators. And at some point um, in the past couple of years, uh, we increasingly found ourselves at odds with students who wanted people disinvited, who wanted new speech codes, who wanted uh, another group prosecuted for what it said. And that this to me is definitely the most distressing phase of my career yet. Yeah, and you talk about that in your cover story for The Atlantic, yep. the September issue, the coddling of the American mind. What inspired you to write that? And what, what you know, when did you start seeing these trends? Uh, yeah, well, it's a very personal story, the, 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 sorry, the, the story behind the, uh, the Atlantic article. The Atlantic article, which, by the way, my, my preferred title for it was Arguing Towards Misery. Mm-hmm. Um, that was what I thought the title was going to be for the last— I, uh, I did a Google Trends recently <laughs> and saw the use of the word coddled, coddled over the past year. And as soon as your article came <laughs> up, it, it, I mean, it just spikes. Yeah. And then you got President Obama using it yeah. when he's talking about how students shouldn't be coddled and protected from different points of view. I, I've, I've heard some college campuses where— they don't want to have a guest speaker who, you know, is too conservative. Or they don't want to read a book if it has language that is offensive to African Americans or somehow sends a, a demeaning signal towards women. And, you know, I, I got to tell you, I, I don't agree with that either. You know, I, I don't agree that you, when you become students at colleges, have to be coddled and protected from different points of view. It's not my favorite way to refer to it. Um, the word coddling does not appear in the article. Um, it's actually very personal how the article came about. Um, I previously hadn't been all that open about this, but I always had issues with anxiety and depression my whole life. Mm-hmm. And I went through a very scary stage. And the thing that got me out of it was cognitive behavioral therapy. And for those of you who don't... i got to just jump in and say that I am also someone whose life has been improved immeasurably by cognitive behavioral therapy. I am like the biggest devotee, so... I didn't know that. Yeah. Look, look at this. I'm not saying it's right lifelong, lifelong anxiety sufferer who, you know, I wish I had discovered it. I mean, I, I'm finished with it now. The nice thing about CBT is it's a course yeah, exactly. of therapy. It's not like you start therapy and then you're in it forever. It's like a treatment. Yeah, you have to remind yourself some of the, some of the yeah, approaches. Yeah, uh, you know, just absolutely, I agree. It's just life-changing. It's absolutely amazing. Okay. We've talked a little bit about this, but but um, that's really great to know. And but here, here's what I think is really profound, though, about, about a CBT that people really need to understand. All CBT is is getting in the discipline practice of examining if your automatic thoughts are rational. And they have things called cognitive distortions. You say, is this an overgeneralization? Is this dichotomous thinking? Is this uh, catastrophizing? And everybody does this. Everybody does this to some degree. Everybody says it's like, oh, if this date goes badly, my life is over. You know, like we all say this kind of stuff. But for those of us who are a little more anxious or prone to depression, we say it a lot louder and a lot more often. But it's also one of the most successful interventions for depression and anxiety that we have ever come up with and it involves no drugs. But what's even more profound about it is just the fact that if you think about the tradition it comes from, it's, a, it's the tradition of Marcus Aurelius. It's the tradition of, 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 uh, of the old uh, you know, Socratic uh, method of, of examining your yeah. thoughts. You know, it's, it's something that Buddha, the Buddha could have taught you. Yeah. And just, but just the idea of uh, enlightenment, uh, self-directed enlightenment, self-examination is not only good for our society, it's not even good for production of ideas, but it actually could also be good for happiness. That's, right. pro- that's profound. Yeah. So, so while I was learning all this stuff about cognitive behavioral therapy. And, and when, I, was the, when was this about? This was about 2007. Okay. And as I was learning this, I was seeing case after case coming up where I'm like, holy, we're teaching a generation overgeneralizing. We're teaching them personalization. We're teaching them Emotional reasoning, which is essentially if you feel something, that means something has to be wrong. And 
one of the more interesting ideas in cognitive therapy, which is also true, is that every time you feel bad, it might just be a, a, a sensation that's going to pass in a couple of minutes. It might come from nowhere. You yeah. might need more glucose. Who knows? <laughs> or, right. or you might, you might be take a nap. <laughs> or, and as I also like to stress, sometimes when you rationally examine your thoughts, you, um, and I think this was missed in the article, sometimes you can come to the conclusion, oh, yeah, no, I was being rational that time. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, you know, another interesting thing about CBT, and, and I see it tying into campus stuff, is that, you know, from a standpoint of anxiety, Mm -hmm. One of the big things that they talk about is not seeking reassurance, whether it's from other people or even from yourself, but rather learning to accept the fact that uncertainty exists and learning to live with the discomfort of some uncertainty in your life. Mm -hmm. And what we see, I feel like, on campus is students, you know, basically constantly seeking reassurance now from these administrations um, and, and getting it because of, you know, I think probably because of a lot of factors, but, you know, one is sort of this increasingly corporate model where, you know, the university is the seller and the student is the buyer. And if what they want is the administration to, you know, be a reassuring parental figure. But anyway, I don't want to cut you off on your, on your thing, but I feel like I see that side of it. Oh, no. Really? Yeah, well, I mean, what are the campuses doing here to supercharge this sort of well, irrational thinking? In, in, in the first draft of, of, uh, of, the, uh, of the Coddling of the American Mind, uh-huh. the, the one that I, uh, you know, after John Haidt had agreed to co-author it with me, I did Social a, Psychologist yeah, at NYU. Yeah, best-selling author. Yeah. I was through the, over the moon when he, when he agreed to uh, co-author the thing with me because um, he really liked the idea. Um, but one thing I emphasize. Oh, he thought it was brilliant. <laughs> I think is, is a direct quote from him. Don't undersell yourself. I'm, I'm blushing. <laughs> uh, but but the um, uh, oh, you actually are <laughs> blushing. <laughs> yes. uh, yeah. We need um, to start filming these podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> but but the um, uh, one of the things I emphasize a little bit more was um, was more true throughout most of my career because when I really first started thinking about this, I'm like, oh my god, we are teaching a generation of students that, for example. Smart people freak out when someone sends around – this is a real example, of course – a picture of their kid doing yoga with a Game of Thrones t-shirt on. <laughs> like we get we, – we demonstrated catastrophizing to a generation of students like it's our job over and over again saying, oh my god, you're going to get Zika virus. Oh my god, you're going to get kidnapped when, when, when we know all of these things are – uh, highly exaggerated in how likely you are to actually experience it. But on campuses, I felt like, wow, catastrophizing, we're teaching them almost every day. Certainly emotional reasoning. Certainly uh-huh. the idea that kind of like, if I feel uh, if I feel bad, you must be bad. Yeah. Um, that uh, the dichotomous thinking, either something is uh, uh, just um, or it's a social evil. Uh, all of these sort of like, um, all of these habits that can make people anxious and depressed, I think we've been modeling them in the worst possible way, which is through example. And if you look at administrative case after administrative case at fire, they involve someone um, overreacting, o- over making a bigger deal out of something than it needed yeah. to be. And so one of the things that I keep on saying, when, when, because people who haven't read Coddling the American Mind, you know, they can be pretty hostile to me on campus. Yeah, it's a long article. Yeah, well, and, and, and they'll come, to come, come at me saying, kind of like, oh, you're saying we're coddled uh, and, and that we're fragile. I'm, like, I'm saying, actually, I'm saying you're not fragile. You're being treated like you're I'm, fragile. And you're being taught that you're fragile. Right. And, and to sort of paraphrase your father, anyone who tells you you're fragile is not your friend. Right. Yeah. And, and it, her father being Alan Charles Kors, co-founder of FIRE. Yeah. And, and as it becomes um, – it, it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. And, and I think that what an incredible disservice we're doing to people, doing to these students to say – oh, like it, so I always put it this way. If you had a shrink that put its arms on either side of your shoulder and said – Listen, I'm really glad you came to me, but you should know you're very fragile. And if you hear things that hurt you, you're never going to be okay again. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Would you work with that person and would that person stay in the profession? And the answer is, of course, no. So meanwhile, you know, I feel like we're actually delivering this sort of positive message about about empowerment. Um, But when people uh, – people have been looking primarily at the title and I think sometimes the graphic that went along with the article without reading the damn thing. Yeah, and it's sort of within FIRE's scope uh, with regard to the strong student model that we always advocate, that that being that students aren't these wilting flowers, that they're strong and resilient and they can live with freedom Mm -hmm. um, and that, you know. Our fathers or, you know, our parents or our grandparents in the 1950s and 60s went to college, threw off this idea of in loco parentis that administrators need to be your parents. And now we have some sort of, you know, in in the past we've had administrators who say, you know, who want to step in and police students' lives for them. Uh, Now we have some students who are actually going to administrators. Demanding that. that. And, you know, is that a result of this sort of thinking that uh, administrators have taught students over the past decade or so, this idea that they are fragile and that, you know, if there is something wrong with you, 
you should come to us and we'll try and fix it for you. Yeah. What, what do you think, Sam? Well, I think I see a lot of it kind of coming from the increasing bureaucratization on campus. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, these days you really can't, like, sneeze without coming across an administrator. It's gotten to the point where if you look up, I forget what the exact URL is, but it's, you know, university title generator or something. <laughs> you can automatically generate these titles like dean for campus sensitivity and, and you know, and, and a fake salary of, you know, yeah. $250,000. Um, so, you know, there was a study and it was from, I think it ran from like 1993 to 2007. There was an, an organization that looked at um, basically the percentage and increase in administrative hires versus, you know, faculty and instructional hires and found that just on most campuses, you know, the administrative hires is what exploded while faculty mm -hmm. and instructional hiring either sort of stayed the same or sometimes even went down. Um, and so I think that this environment on campus where everything is so heavily bureaucratized, where students and their parents are treated as sort of the consumers, I think that's why you're seeing so much kind of backlash against faculty, too, because I, I feel like whereas, I don't know, when I was in college, faculty were kind of the authority. I mean, they were the people who at least as a student, I saw as kind of running the institution. Now it's almost like they're sort of subservient uh, or treated as subservient to administrations who are the ones looking out for, you know, what is in the best interest of a university as the seller of an education. As a, you, know, you know, and I, I feel like it's just changed. I see that as a big contributor to the whole shift in dynamic. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I've been, spent, I've been doing a lot of reading. Uh, I recently had mm -hmm. a, my, uh, our, our, I have a son, Benjamin. Yes, um, congratulations. Who's just about to turn six months old. And, of course, I'm doing what any nerd does in these situations. <laughs> I've been reading like crazy. Uh -huh. uh, but I've also been trying to combine my interest in sort of positive psychology with, um, um, with my reading. So have you read – Can I plug a book to you then? Oh, I, I want, I'm going to plug one okay. first. I'm proud to say uh, that she's a friend of mine from law school. Uh, she was a dean when I was there, uh, the sweetest person ever, and, and now I realize a total badass. Uh, Julie Lithcott Haynes um, wrote a book called How to Raise an Adult, and I'm not quite done with it yet, but it is absolutely Ooh, brilliant. I'm going to read that. You absolutely have to, and it's terrifying too, though, because it talks about. You know, because I, I think, that, like all things, I never think th something is caused by a single factor. I always think that it's a culmination of, of several different factors. But some of the stories of what we're doing to this generation of kids, you know, on the one hand, we're not letting them, we're not letting them feel empowered. And shock upon shock, disempowered people feel depressed and anxious mm -hmm. because we're not letting them do a lot of things for themselves. You're giving themselves independence. But we're also saying, and by the way, if you don't get into this impossible school, your life is going to be over. Mm -hmm. And by the way, very few people get into this impossible yeah. school. Yeah. Um, and so reading that book, it's just terrible. But it also talks about scarcity. Like things, things are making my heart, you know, like uh, beat faster. You know, people uh, about students doing their uh, – about parents doing their students' homework and all this kind of like, yeah. you know, it's awful. But what were you going to yeah. say? Oh, well, I was going to recommend a book called Parenting with Love and Logic, oh. which is basically the idea behind it. The author's idea is that – a lot of, you know, teenagers and young adults engage in, in quite dangerous sort of risk-taking behavior because they have arrived at, at adolescence and early adulthood without ever been, ha, being given the opportunity to make decisions for themselves and to experience the consequences of those decisions. So it basically advocates from a very early age. Obviously, it, it's sort of age-appropriate. There are risks you don't let your three- or four-year-old take. Mm, but if your knives, three- or four-year-old yeah. says, I'm, not going, I'm going out without a coat on, mm -hmm. you let them do it. And then you say to them when they complain that they're cold, you say, well, I bet that next time you're going to wear a coat. Yeah. I mean, and that's sort of an example that, you know, in age-appropriate ways, you let your kids make decisions for themselves and then experience the real consequences of those decisions. That's absolutely amazing because I, my parents weren't around all that much when I was a kid. And, I, and to a large degree, I was raised more by my older sister um, and my older brother. Um, and my dad wasn't really around very much. And my mom had to work nights. Um, but she's uh, she's – British born and she has all of these practices that as an adult I'm really starting to realize we're very bright and one she always talked to us like we're adults and it's adorable when you're talking to a five year old like they're <laughs> like, a, like, a, like, a, like a little tiny lawyer or accountant but, I have but, a friend but, who does that yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but you know we want to do that for Ben too but the other thing was it, it's really cool that you should say that Suffering the natural consequences of your actions is the best teacher. Yeah. Well, it makes parenting a lot easier because then you don't have to come up with punishments. You just think about, okay, what's the natural – what sort of flows naturally from this, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Well, there's, this is actually a really good segue to what I think is – you know, I think it's safe to say the biggest headline from this past sure. year, which is what happened at Yale. Yeah. All starting with a letter from uh, 
the uh, she's assistant master or assistant yeah. master at Silliman College yeah. at Yale University. Erica Christakis, her husband uh, Nicholas Christakis, was a master at Silliman College. Um, her letter sort of talked about some of the same things as you guys are discussing, though, in the context of Halloween. Yeah. Do you, do you want to talk a little bit about the scenario there? I, I'm assuming that most of our listeners are familiar with the outline. The, I, I, the I do. The, the Yale case is so, you know, so radioactive, uh, depending on who you talk to. And people have such strong feelings for it. And being right in the middle of it from the beginning has always been <laughs> kind, of a, kind of strange. Because I knew, I, I knew both Erica and Nick uh, because Erica and, and Nick Christakis used to work at Harvard. Yes. And Erica read Unlearning Liberty – wrote an article about empowering students for Time magazine, not disempowering them, in favor – and it was an article in favor of student free speech rights against the Harvard administration uh-huh. um, and then invited me up to talk to her students at Harvard. So we knew each other from, from back then. And Erica's specialty is in early childhood yes. development, right? And I'm gonna, we're going to plug another book. Yeah. Um, she wrote a book called The Importance of Being Little. Mm-hmm. Um, which is also very good, and it talks about things like unstructured play and like the ways you let chil- uh, children m- mature. And from that perspective, it only makes sense that she wrote a letter um, when uh, the s- multicultural department sent out a letter saying, you know, be sensitive about what you wear for Halloween, and here's some ideas of what you shouldn't wear. And here's a list of administrators who approve this message. Yeah, you know. um, and she just and it's one of these things that that what Erica said in that letter has been so badly distorted, in my opinion, that in every single speech I give about this, I say, go read the letter. And the, her letter was to Silliman College to students. Silliman College students. Yeah. Questioning whether or not it was really Yale's role to be te- to be acting in local parentis, to be to be to be telling uh, these people like their children that you can't handle this, and yeah. it w- and it, particularly if you read her research and her or that work, they can't police their own norms right. for how to dress on on it, Halloween. So it was very much an you know, and it was not at all. There was no substantive defense of offensive costumes. It was all about. The role of the university versus the role of adult college students. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And, and it's kind of funny because like people will talk about, oh, but it's context and the students who were aggrieved and angry at her you know, had other contexts. I'm like, yes, there, there's a lot of contextual things that should be added. And one of them is Erica was responding in part to the fact that every single Halloween for years at FIRE, we've watched different often ham-handed attempts to tell students what they can't where on Halloween. In some cases, the administration is punishing the students. Punishing students and probably like – and this got it sort of like ceremonial start. I think at Cornell or Syracuse in 2010 where the the chief of police warned that he – that students might be told – might be punished and told to disrobe. (laughs) And I was like, that's just creepy. Uh And the idea that uh, the chief of police did not get how creepy that sounded, (laughs) Um, you know, that uh, the co-eds would be asked to disrobe, just absolutely disturbing. So I was invited up to um, uh, to speak on free speech by Erica and Nick Christakis um, at Silliman College, and I was just there coincidentally mm-hmm. uh, to give a lecture that night um, when I saw the uh, sort of confrontation in, in 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 the yard at Silliman, and I was watching it, and it was very interesting to watch because it was a couple dozen angry students, um, uh, many of whom were filming it. The Yale Daily News was there and filmed it. Yeah. Um, and they were, um, you know, really angry about, uh, about what Eric had done. They chalked her name all over yeah, the, the, the courtyard the, the, there, around yeah. to Silliman. Um, but one thing I should say about the, you know, the, the nature of the confrontation is it had – Nick did a really good job of de-escalating it from uh, – mm-hmm. you, you know, like it definitely seemed like it was mm-hmm. uh, just anger. But then he tried to make it productive. And there were moments during that where, where, where I felt like some real constructive communication was happening. Um, yeah. But there are other moments where people were just, you know, demanding he apologize and breaking into tears because he didn't apologize exactly the way one student wanted him to. Yeah. And I started recording it because I wanted everybody – and this is why I recorded it. I've been doing this for a really long time. I know what happens in he said, she said situations. And if you can't prove that a professor um, acted appropriately in one of these high-stress situations – um, it's often that professor who ends up losing their job. You, you seem to think that somehow I don't agree with the content of your beliefs. And that's not what's happening from my perspective. From my perspective. I, I don't okay, see you as can a I, can, I, can I say something? Can I, can okay. I just interject really quickly? The moral of Michaela's comment is now the moral of the story is that she wants an apology, yet you respond not with an apology. That's 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 what that's, that's you, my question. I'm just saying, you, are you gonna are you gonna I said, can I can I finish? Are you going to address the heart of her comment? That's all I want. Are you gonna give an apology? 
I think it's a testament to the foresight that you had because there were, as you said, a lot of other people taking videos there. The El Daily News took videos. Mm-hmm. They put them up online and then they took them down. Yeah. Uh, you know, and it's funny because people ask me because they know I work for a free speech organization. They're like, "Have you seen that video from Yale?" I'm like, "My boss took that video from Yale." <laughs> yeah, and so you know, we felt there was a moral responsibility to uh, uh, to put it up um, to, and to show that Nick uh, kept his calm during all that. And I will say, that, you know, one thing I was horrified to discover was that people that the Daily Caller and I have no hesitation on calling them out on this decided mm-hmm. to list the name of one of the students who was dox them. Yeah, yeah, to dox to, to list the name of one of the students who was yelling in a Nick's face and uh-huh. give give information about her. And that that I'm completely wrong. Um, the uh, but the. Uh, but what I also feel kind of funny about that for, for another reason is that what had happened right before that one student who was calling, you know, Nick Christakis disgusting. And, yeah, for uh, the famous know, portion of that video, yeah. Was there another student who had said exactly the same thing, if not more, more forcefully. Call, you know, so it wasn't just one student participating in this. So I was there. I, I got this on video. I still, you know, still got questions like how, how was it that you were there? I'm like, complete coincidence. I was staying in the Solomon dorms. Um, but I, I needed it, people to see that, that, that Nick uh, acted. Because um, they don't know about the secret free speech bat signal that goes, <laughs> yeah, up, that and goes up and fires immediately on <laughs> campus with a camera in that, vertical position. That Nick was really trying to have a, have a constructive dialogue and that he did nothing wrong. Uh-huh. Um, but nonetheless, you know, given the environment, uh, Erica says she won't teach there again. I don't uh-huh. know if she'll ever teach there again. Yeah. Uh, Nick took a sabbatical the next fall. And now both of them have dropped out as um, uh, as masters, masters at, yeah. at, at Silliman uh, College because a number of students said they wouldn't be willing to accept a diploma from Nick um, yeah. because of what he did wrong. I still don't entirely under, under, understand. So it's a very sad situation kind of for all involved. And I think it's going to be a, a story that people are talking about for years from now. Yeah, I mean, would you would you think that that's an example of the catastrophizing that you point to in your article, or is that a different, um, you know, sort of irrational way of thinking? Oh well, I just want you know what you said about not students not accepting a diploma. Well, a I agree that it, that is catastrophizing, and that's something that we see across the board now too. This idea that. If you disagree with someone about something, then you must completely disavow them as a person. I mean, we see uh-huh. this happening right now um, with Alice Drager, who, um, you know, if you are familiar with Fire's work, she was in our, you know, in our on our site earlier in the year because she was the editor of a bioethics journal that published a serious piece on the intersection of disability and sexuality that then Northwestern. Uh, you know, worried was going to harm its brand. And so they they took it down from the website and censored the journal. And Alice, uh, you know, wrote an absolutely heroic resignation letter yep. from from Northwestern. But now, uh, you know, she wrote uh, she wrote another piece, I guess, several years ago about, uh, you know, teaching children about sex. And, you know, uh, I think the title of the piece was something about why can't we admit to children that sex is primarily about pleasure. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was going to be reprinted by Everyday Feminism, which is a website uh, you know, that posts various feminist pieces. It was printed by them. Well, oh, briefly. Yeah. And then it came out that she had written some other pieces on trans issues that everyday feminism disagreed with. So they sent her a letter and said, you know, we're sorry, but we're taking this down because it's come to our attention that you've written these other pieces that we disagree with. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. even though we really like this piece and we think it's a valuable contribution. Yeah. So this idea, you know, and it's the same thing. It's like, well, you said something I disagree with, so I can't even accept my diploma from you. Or, well, mm-hmm. we disagree with something you said on a completely different topic. So we have to just disavow you entirely as a, as a person and every every idea you've ever had. I mean, if that's not catastrophizing, like, yeah. I don't know well, what is. What Erica did was academics. I mean, what she said was part of acad- her academic speech. I mean, what she was talking about was completely germane to what she studies, to what she writes about every day, to the things she, I'm sure she talks with students about. So, I mean, you know, if you're, if you're a student, um, you know, if you're a faculty member, you're probably going to shut up in the future. You know, when, when I wrote a, a, a summary of what's going on on campus, one of the things uh, last January, one thing that I wrote was... this was, for Cato? Yeah, for yeah, Cato. Yeah. Was, um, where's everybody been? You know, right. uh, th- this has been going on for a really long time. And I even, you know, in recently talking to students, one thing that I said is like, guys, I'm going to apologize to students because... Uh, I think it's – I do think it's noteworthy that the, the horrible abuses of, of campus free speech and due process have been going on long before uh, students were part of the part of the mix. 
But the media yeah. tended to ignore that. And I'm kind of like, but now that it's an opportunity to sort of like hate on younger students, they're kind of like, well, now now we get it. <laughs> and it's like, oh, come on. Like, what, where were you five years ago? You, you know, where, where were you 10 years ago? Or four years ago. Yeah. Part of the reason, I, it, it seemed to me, too, that part of the reason the Yale uh, controversy got the attention it did was that it came right on the heels of the protests at the University of Missouri. Yep. And you know, whatever you think about those protesters' conduct, the underlying issues that they were protesting were, you know, their allegations of acts of racism on campus and mm-hmm. stuff were very serious. And then you had this Yale situation, which seemed to escalate just as quickly and, and be just as big a deal to these students. And it was an email from a professor about Halloween costumes. And it sort of seemed like, well, wait a minute, what kind of bubble are these students living in, you know? Uh-huh. But um, you know, the Missouri, the Missouri situation, the situation at Yale, were part of a larger campus movement across yeah. the country yes. uh, against perceived racism on campus. And uh, you know, one of the one of the things that we saw from students on the ground were these these sayings that free speech is just a, a diversion from what they were doing. Right. Uh, Greg, do you want to? I know you've spoken a little bit about that, and we, you know, Robert Shibley, who's the executive director here at Fire, uh, wrote a blog post. At the end of last year, called free speech not just a diversion from campus protests, and he talked about how some of the demands that these students were making, uh, which can be viewed at thedemands.org, involved speech. Uh, had many yeah. speech components. They were demanding campus speech codes. Not all of them, of course, but some of them. For example, Missouri State University, the protesters demanded a uh, commitment from the administration to differentiate hate speech from freedom of speech, which I anticipate most listeners to this podcast will understand why that's problematic. At Dartmouth College, for example, protesters demanded that the conservative Dartmouth Review give up its Dartmouth name or the administrators um, take that name away from them if they continue to use the word Indian in some of their coverage or commentary. So very much, you know, and th- those are just a few examples. You can read more of them over at the blog post. But, those, you know, it was very much, in some cases, a speech component here, right, Greg? Oh, oh absolutely, yeah. And that, that was, it was funny. That, that article that you're referring to was written by Jelani Cobb and it was called uh, The Free Speech Diversion yeah. um, at, the, at The New Yorker. And uh, what's funny is I have since um, met and debated Jelani Cobb a couple times. Um, and the first thing I'd like to say, and this is always, you know, pleasant to discover, is sometimes when you meet your, your critics in person, you might actually really like them. And, and and this and in this case, I think Jelani Cobb's an awesome guy. Like he's 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 a hard dude not to like. Even when he's insulting uh, <laughs> my opinion, I still like the guy. Um, but you know, we just have to marshal out example after example. It's like, no, this is not a diversion. Um, unfortunately, uh, some of these students are demanding new speech codes. They're demanding control of the curriculum. They're de- they're demanding sort of ideological conformity. Um, and that's not that wasn't all the students, yeah. um, but some of them were. So the the idea that free speech had nothing to do with it is sort of a favorite talking point that still gets recycled and refers to the article. Meanwhile, when Jelani and I debated at Vanderbilt, for example, we agreed on, you know, nine out of ten things. We, we did, like, the, the things, the main things we were agreeing on were, were um, interpretations of facts or understanding of facts in different cases. That was about, that, that was about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is, it does kind of show how we have these different islands um, of, of uh, and echo chambers in the country that only talk to each other. Because yeah. when I, you know, if I talk in more libertarian circles, you know, it's kind of assumed that everybody knows all the same things. In conservative circles, it turns out there's things that I don't know that everybody's supposed to know. <laughs> um, and in more liberal circles, you know, different uh, memes keep going. And and the, the the idea that free speech had nothing to do with it is something that I still um, uh, run into. And I have to say it's like, no, these were constant examples of, of students demanding new speech codes and people got fired for it. People's jobs were threatened over it. But what's interesting about this and the thing that I always have to do and I and to give larger context is one, uh, students had always been uh, on our side um, when it came to free speech. Not necessarily all of them, but a lot of them. Um, students tend, tend to get it. And particularly when I would go speak on campus, particularly minority students. They, mm-hmm. they knew the history of the civil rights movement. They knew the, the history of all the uh, civil rights movement up to the gay rights movement and understood how important free speech was for that. So what exactly happened last fall? I'm still not entirely clear on yeah. Well, I remember when I started at Fire, Greg, I was your assistant, of course, and we were doing publicity for your book on learning liberty, yeah. which is very much about administrative censorship. This whole freedom from speech movement, the, the microaggression policing, the trigger warning demands, the disinvitations on campus. I mean, this 
this wasn't on our radar. No, yeah, and, and I wrote a short book, and I'm glad I, my initial response to writing that short broadside called Freedom from Speech was something to the effect of, hell no, I don't have the time. <laughs> and I'm really glad I took the time to write it because um, it was only 9,000 words, only about as long as the Atlantic article. Um, but it was uh, my opportunity to talk about the shift we'd seen. Yeah. And I mark the historic moment of – because we were having a sense within FIRE that other than the Department of Education, that a lot of these things were kind of improving, a sense that we would get every so right, often yeah. at FIRE. We'd have, we'd have these little bouts. I remember in 2006 having a little bit like, okay, maybe things are improving. And, but I've learned to sort of dread that 2007 was a terrible well, year. 2007 was a terrible <laughs> yeah, and year. And then before 2011, there were a few more years where – I mean, a lot of the cases that we were getting, it seemed like the issues were more subtle, but, you know. Or, or, or more like purely bureaucratic. Right, where, where right, it was right, just right security so, fees, things like that. Yeah. And then it was like, boom. boom. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, it, and so, like, it seems like every time we think the coast is clear, we're like, oh, no. And the moment when we really noticed that I that I think of the symbolic moment uh, that, that that clued us into something had changed was Ray Kelly being uh, uh, shouted down at Brown. Yes. Now we're civil liberties people, so like even though Fire is politically very different, uh, you know, like we're, 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 we come from all different sort of political backgrounds. We all believe in civil liberties, so I don't think many of us feel all that great about some of Ray Kelly's you know stop and frisk background and that yeah. kind of stuff. Ray um, Kelly was a police commissioner in New York City, right? right. Yeah. And, and you know, and the reason why civil libertarians uh, uh, don't like him is because he was considered the father of stop and frisk, yeah. which civil libertarians really don't like as an idea. Um, so I understand why students were unhappy that he was invited, but the attitude, as far as I'm concerned, should be, well, let's hear him out. Um, and what was really incredible about the situation at Brown was that the students who were trying to get him disinvited instead got him to agree to an hour of question and answer. Um, so if you really wanted to really, you know, give Ray Kelly a piece of your mind or ask him a hard question, he was saying, come ask me a hard question. But that wasn't good enough for some of the students there. And they shouted him down so badly that, that the speech couldn't go on. And we've seen incidents like this in fire history. Um, but this one seemed much larger scale. And then uh, we knew something was kind of different when the president lamented that this is the first time anyone's ever been chased off Brown's campus. Yeah. And students cheered. Yeah. No justice, no peace, no racist police, Islamophobic, NYPD, go away. I want to speak to you about the role of proactive policing and the role it's played in the keeping New York City safe in our post 9 11 environment. How long is too long? <laughs> I've been coming to lectures here since 1977, and I've never seen this happen before. I was looking forward to hearing what the commission had to say. And from that moment on, we noticed incident after incident after incident of students recommending uh, illiberalism, uh, recommending that the speaker can't speak here. Yeah, we see that with this invitation season, which often is commencement season, but speakers are invited to campus. Students or faculty members, in some cases, don't like some of the views that those speakers might hold, and they work to get them disinvited from their their commencement address. We saw that uh, with uh, John Brennan this year, right, at the University of Pennsylvania. I think he only got to speak for about, I don't know that it was a commencement address, but I think he only got to speak for 15 minutes before John Brennan, the former or current CIA director of the CIA, um, 15 minutes before before he left. But um, The one that really got to me this year because it was just the most, you know, it was the most blatant display of this attitude that I've probably ever seen was the disinvitation at Williams, where there is a student group yeah. at Williams Uncomfortable learning. Uncomfortable learning. Yeah. Founded by an African, a liberal African American student, for the express purpose of bringing, uh, you know, controversial viewpoints to campus. Um, and one of the controversial viewpoints that he invited was John Derbyshire, who is a former writer for National Review, who had written yeah. a piece that, uh, you know, a lot of people decried as racist, and that I think actually led to his firing from the National Review. Um, And, uh, you know, this student, Zach Wood, and his group invited him to campus. And the president of Williams unilaterally stepped in and said, no, you know, this I I will not allow, you know, I'm going to act in the best interest of our students here and not allow this viewpoint on campus. 
Um, and, and, you know, Zach Wood said, well, that's that's a shame because, you know, I wanted to bring him here to force him to confront intelligent people who were going to question his premises. And, um, you know, I, I was looking forward to taking him down a peg. And, and, you know, here you have this paternalistic administrator stepping in and saying, well, I'm sorry, I know what's best for you. Yeah. You know, we're not going to let this person speak. And to me, that was the most sort of naked display of this kind of paternalism, which is, you know, it's behind, I think, all of these disinvitations. Dis- but you you rarely see it. Uh, you know, so so exposed so like that. Yeah, and Fire keeps a database of these attempts, a disinvitation <clears throat> database. And uh, as of May fifth, we had eighteen attempts mm-hmm. on campus. I think eleven of them were successful, including the John Derbyshire, Don, John Derbyshire one. But uh, we we don't we're running out of time here. But before we close up the discussion of this campus protest this year, sure. I think it's important noting right that even if students are calling for censorship or calling for speech codes. If an administrator was to step in and punish them for calling for those speech codes, fire would step oh, in yeah, and defend sure. their Absolutely. right, right? You know, yeah. it's just a unique position that you're in when you're a civil libertarian. It was really, it was really funny when, it, when I made the argument, um, when I explained uh, in a debate in, at Cato with, with Eric Posner that um, students have the right to demand freedom from speech and the right to demand speech codes, just we also think they're wrong, but yeah. we'll defend the right to be wrong. Yeah, and that's what we and, said in our, our statement on, on and, the protests. And, and which was what was funny was Eric Posner was like, oh, that's just ridiculous. And I'm like, no, it isn't. Like, of course you have the free speech right to question the First Amendment. Um, that's what you're doing. That's what your whole career <laughs> is, Eric Posner, for, go- for, for, for goodness sakes. Um, right, the problem is that unlike other demands that we would consider ridiculous, like yeah. a demand for discrimination or something like that, when students demand freedom from speech, administrators take it seriously. And that's yeah. the problem. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it, I, what I hope to do and just to reach out – and it, it's kind of funny because um, I, I, I sometimes joke that I have this sort of mean genie granting my wishes um, because – and, and he or she will grant it only in a very technical sense. And I wanted um, – uh, I was, you know, d- depressed about this, the apathy among students for such a long time. And I got to say, on one level, sort of like the activism of the last year has definitely convinced me that, that, uh, you know, apathy, uh, that the problem of apathy, you know, maybe at least for now, a thing of the past. What I find unfortunate, though, is sometimes when that activism is is devoted towards, you know, shrinking the marketplace of ideas, then I think it's just completely wrongheaded. But there are so many things to be uh, to be uh, worked up about these days all over the world and on campuses, everything from cost to. Uh, to, to, to the way things are run, to just the, the the weird sort of isolation that it creates from from other people. But the idea that the solution to the problems of higher education are going to be hire more administrators. Um, yeah. Sorry, that's just not going to. Which is what you're getting in some of these demands yeah. that students are making. It's it's not going to work. <laughs> no, I think our fire's career, fire fire's sense of yeah. founding, that has borne that out. But before we finish up here, I want to ask both of you. This year sort of took us by surprise Mm -hmm. in a way. To the extent that it's possible, what do you guys think we'll see in the next school year, the 2016-2017 school year? Sam, I know that uh, we've had a decline in the red light speech codes that um, colleges, you know, from our our spotlight database – but, you know, that doesn't mean the threat's gone away. We still have many colleges that have yellow right. light speech codes. I think only 5% or so maintain green light speech codes or green, or green light schools. So what are you anticipating moving into the next next year for policy reform? Well, uh, you know, we do still have a challenge, you know, a major speech code challenge in addition to the, the almost 50% of schools that have red light policies. Uh, another 40-some percent have yellow light policies, yes. which, um, you know, while they may not be as restrictive as the red light policies, are still... Um, you know, overwhelmingly unconstitutional. And we also are seeing a real rise in um, bias incident reporting policies, which are sort of an interesting kind of policy that uh, frequently, while some of them prohibit speech outright, often they kind of operate in this gray area where they may not be outright prohibiting speech, but they are uh, actively encouraging students to report on one another um, for any speech that they may find offensive, which to me uh, you know, a climate, a big brother climate like that, where students are constantly being encouraged to, uh, you know, report on one or to the, another to the administration, while it may not outright violate free speech, I don't think it's very conducive to a climate where students um, are able to have free and open discussions. Yeah, um, and honestly, I mean, I, I know this sounds so cliche, but those kind of free and open discussions are really important. I mean, when I think back to some of the most important learning I did in college, it was you know, in late night conversations with classmates of different backgrounds and, and things like that. So I think that by sort of 
uh, you know, chilling those kinds of discussions through this fear of the cease. If you see something, say something. Exactly. Sort of protocol. I think that you know we're really depriving students of some of their best learning opportunities on campus. Yeah, uh, um, it's kind of funny. I feel like by nature I'm optimistic about things, um, just in a Russian sense. You know, I think that my village probably won't be destroyed. I think kind of like you know, like the worst things that, that could happen. In well, there were some successes happen. this year. I mean, we got some universities adopting the Chicago Statement, right. which is their glowing statement in support of free speech. We did have a decline in the red light speech codes, but oh, but I, but I was going to come to a big butt. Um, <laughs> I was anticipating the butt, but um, I think things are going to get a lot worse. And I think what's going to be worse is the media is going to get tired of covering it. They're going to take it increase and because I think that one of the problems we had with some of our really outrageous cases, even as we said back in 2007, 2004, was a perception in the media that this issue was covered a lot. Mm-hmm. And I, I have you know feel like banging my head against the wall. I'm like, when was the last time this was on network news? And in the last year, yeah, sometimes it has been covered on network yeah. news because the cases have gotten just so bad. But it's amazing how quickly the media can adapt. Adapt now, of course, then you get the real wild card of what ends what ends up happening in the election. Yeah. Um, depending on who's uh, uh, who's elected, I can imagine you know serious uh, protests on campus. Yeah, and then one thing that's so, sorry to jump in here, but if one thing no, that absolutely. is fascinating, and that I think it'll be really fascinating to see how it plays out, is that you know because of the strong feelings engendered by Donald Trump's candidacy, mm-hmm. and because of you know the association of his name with viewpoints that many people view as racist and sexist, we are, we're getting a lot of cases and situations where the mere chalking of his name. Yeah. You know, the mere yeah. campaign slogan, Trump 2016, is itself being treated as perhaps impermissible speech. And so I'll be fascinated to yeah. see how that plays out in the upcoming election cycle. Yeah, I, I mean, I, my optimistic side hopes that people will start to understand uh, because th- that they can be censored too, and this might uh, 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 lead to their appreciating freedom of speech again. But I don't see a lot of signs of that. And I do yeah. think, see instead, you know, the, the meet speech with more speech attitude is... Uh, going more with the European model of silence opinions uh, mm-hmm. that you dislike. Yeah, yeah. Well, I want to thank you both for taking the time to uh, chat with me, Greg, for coming down from DC. We're here for a staff retreat this week, which is fun. It's always nice to see people from the two offices or the remote employees all together. Uh, we'll be back in two weeks. I'm working on what I hope to be, or hope will be, a really special show for you all. Um, on June 30th. And speaking of future shows, you can call in questions at 215-315-0100, and we might just play those questions during future episodes, 215-315-0100. Um, and before we go here, I, I just want to give people the opportunity to jot down the names of those books that you all had recommended, sure. again, Greg and Sam. Uh, what were the what was the book that you recommended, Greg? Uh, Julie Lithcott-Haynes' book, um, How to Be an Adult, I highly recommend, and I also recommend Eric Christakis's The Importance of Being Little. Yep, and Sam? Uh, that was Parenting with Love and Logic by Foster Klein and Jim Fay. Uh, for So to Speak, uh, this podcast is hosted by me, Nico Perino, and recorded and edited by Aaron Reese and Chris Maltby. You can learn more about the show at our Twitter account, twitter.com slash free speech talk, or by liking us on Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. Again, that's facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. You can also email us at so to speak at the fire.org. We're always happy to get listener feedback and entertain ideas for future shows. Thanks for listening. 